Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we're in Acts chapter 2, and we will be looking specifically at verses 41 and 42 over the next few weeks. What we're dealing with in Acts chapter 2, though, is an incredibly important chapter. It is a chapter that basically gives us the beginnings of the church. Because it's so full, though, it requires that we go slow through it. There's much foundational information being given to us, and so we want to understand this well, because if we do, then it will make sense what we read in the upcoming chapters throughout the book of Acts, but you also understand better what's going on in the epistles. Now, at the beginning of this uh, chapter, chapter 2, we had this small band of believers who had yet experienced two key events both of them through the Holy Spirit. The first event was what I'm going to call the indwelling of the Spirit. This is something that it was a permanent reality that they would become indwelt. You may remember in John that Jesus says that the Spirit is with them, but he will be in them. And that's the event that you're going to see. But it hasn't happened yet in the early part of chapter 2. The second event is similar and sometimes confused, but it's separate. It is the spirit baptism, which is a one-time event. So the indwelling is a permanent, ongoing event for uh, all believers, and the spirit baptism is a one-time event that every believer will experience, though they basically don't know it. Now, until these occurred, the church didn't exist. And so what you have in Acts 2 is a very important passage for understanding what the church is. Now, with this group of a few believers, we then saw the Spirit come and do a tremendous work, and several things happened in that moment when the Holy Spirit came. One of them was the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is not the Spirit baptism, and it's not the indwelling of the Spirit, but rather it is an empowerment, and the Apostle Peter was full of the Holy Spirit, and as a result, he stood and he preached boldly to the people at the temple. He said that they were now living in the last days. And why? Because the Spirit of God had finally come, as the prophet Joel had prophesied. And if they were living in the last days, then the next great event for them would be God's judgment. The problem with that is that they were guilty of rejecting Jesus, the one whom the Father sent to them, the one who was their Messiah, the one they all claimed to have been waiting for. They rejected him, they killed him, but the worst thing of all is that God raised him from the dead. And so now the scripture says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is waiting for the Father to bring all the enemies under his feet. And I can tell you with absolute assurance that if you killed Jesus, then you are his enemy. And so now they are afraid. Many became very frightened by this. They were cut to the heart, it says. They wanted to know what can they do then if this is true. And they knew it was true. They knew they were guilty. They were terribly frightened. They knew they were now under God's wrath, and they wanted to know, was there any hope? And Peter said, repent, turn, change your mind, turn your mind from a heart and a mindset of rejecting Jesus to receiving Jesus, and then be baptized in Jesus' name. Now, all of this assumes that they would believe that Jesus then was the Savior and the King, and that he did rise from the dead. It makes no sense otherwise. 
to be baptized and claim the name of Jesus as your Lord uh, in that baptism would put you in different or difficult straits with all of those around you. It would cause you to be ostracized. And so no man, no woman would write in their mind if they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had risen would have been baptized in his name. But he also told them if they would do that, then they would receive the same gift that the others had received, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is that baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so when P- then Peter speaks his word of hope and mission for those who will obey and come to Jesus by faith, the promise of participating in the long-awaited new covenant, something you hear me say or whoever does the Lord's Supper every week. This is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant promised in the Old Testament that would replace the old one by Moses or done with Moses. It is a great covenant. And this promise of participating in the new covenant is for them, their children, and for all of those far off. And we talked about that last week. So with that, we find this formerly timid Peter, now very bold, calling them to turn from this broken and twisted age and instead to come to Jesus to be saved. And on that day, the church was born. Now, what happens next is the focus of the next few sermons as we consider then what this early church or this early expression of the church, if you will, did. How did they act? How did they function? What is uh, valued? What is practiced? What is invested in and what is not invested in? Now, this is important for us today. It's, it's going to be important for Grayson. It was important for Matt Miller as we were looking at planting churches. And when you plant a church and you begin one, what are the things that are non-negotiable in the service? Those of you that go back far enough in time that you can remember when there was Temple Baptist, and then when we began to discuss what we were going to do with Missio Day and how it would look and feel and the, and the differences. One of the things that we had to make certain was what are the absolute non-negotiables? And so we discussed that at length. And, and even then, there were struggles and, and debates and stuff as to what it would look like. But it's, it's a passage like this that helps control your thinking and it helps you understand that when we plant a church, when we start a church, what should it look like? What should it be about? This is very important. The American church, as you well know, is undergoing a major shift in separation. And this is very sad and maybe even painful, but I would say it's good and also necessary In fact, I would say that most things miserable are good. They're just not pleasant. What is the local church supposed to be doing? What ought we to be doing? What should every church in this city that claims to be a church of Jesus Christ be doing? This is something every church needs to ask on a regular basis so that they can remain centered upon the path that God set. There is a distinction now between what the local church should be doing and what the average individual Christian should be doing. So keep that in mind as well. There's a distinction there, not a separation, but a distinction. So what one of you might be wanting to do and have a burden to do as an individual Christian is fine, but it doesn't mean it's what the church should be doing. Rather, there are certain things that the local body needs to do and never stray from, even though you might also have other things on your heart that you want to do. Things such as clothes ministry or food pantries, they're all fine. There's nothing wrong with them, but they can never replace what the church ought to be doing. Too often, local churches get sidetracked on these things. All of them are good activities and and beneficial in some way or another, but then ultimately they become the central things, and what God actually commands us to do goes away. So what we have here in Acts chapter uh, 2, 41 and 42 is actually a brief description of core values 
or core activities of the local church. And so I'm going to read it. I want you to see if you can identify them. They're pretty simple, so I don't think you'll have too much trouble, though I think some of it is more subtle than you may understand. So it says, So then, those who had received his word, his being Peter's word, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I'm sure you found all six there, but let me make it very clear. What we want to do over the next two to three Sundays of my preaching, at least, is to consider six key activities that every local church is to be doing. Six vital aspects in the life of any stable church. Each of these are to be clearly expressed in greater detail uh, throughout the epistles. So as we look at the epistles, we're going to see all, all of what we just saw in these two verses enlarged upon and explained. Those six are specifically baptism, membership, biblical teaching, fellowship, Lord's Supper, and prayer. When you think about what a church should look like and what it should focus its people and energy upon, these six things should come to mind. They're central. They're the core. Sometimes a church can expand to other areas. A bigger church can simply do that because you have a larger number of people. But they can never expand at the cost of these. These can never be replaced. Two of these activities are a one-time event, and we'll talk about that today. So two of the activities, the core activities of a church, happen only once, or at least hopefully only once, in a person's life, while the others are ongoing practices. Today we'll look at baptism and membership. These are the two, as I said, that are one-time events, but they're also very important because they function if you will, as entryways. Now, I'll build on that very briefly at the end of my sermon. But they function as entryways into the local church. In fact, the way our church is built, our entryways are a good picture of what I'm going to talk about with regard to baptism and membership. So with that in mind, let's discuss them. Discuss as in, I'll tell you and you listen. Um, Baptism. I spent a lot of time on this subject already, so don't worry, I'm not going to just repeat everything. But we actually did not consider verse 41 in that discussion over the multiple weeks on baptism. First of all, though, let's remember quickly what we did learn. We remember that baptism, physical baptism, the water baptism, is not the same as what we call the spirit baptism. Remember, the spirit baptism is that work of Jesus Christ placing a person within his body or the church universal, and he does it by immersing us with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Gospels repeatedly spoke of a time coming when Jesus would baptize us with the Spirit. Jesus told the apostles in Acts 1-5 that soon they will be baptized with the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it expressly says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That is that Spirit baptism that Jesus is the one doing. It's not something you experience in the way of a feeling or some kind of activity. It's just the reality that when you believe the gospel, Jesus immerses you with the Spirit into his body, and that's what makes you part of what I'm calling the universal church. I'll explain that in a moment. Now, this began on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and continues to this day as a person places their faith in Jesus Christ. But understand also that this event happens before baptism because it happens at the moment you believe. When you believe the gospel and your hope transfers from whatever you're hoping in, your works, your your lineage, whatever it might be, and it transfers now to the finished work of Jesus Christ, at that moment, 
Christ places you in his church through the Spirit. So that happens before you ever have water baptism, if, we, if you practice, of course, believer's baptism. But this baptism is a spiritual work, and we cannot see it. But it puts us into what's known as the universal church. The universal church is just simply this. It is made up of all who are true believers across time. Every true Christian is part of the universal church. But it's not located in any specific area or time. So the people in heaven right now in the presence of the Lord who are believers, they're part of the universal church, and we are part of the universal church if we're truly in Christ. But it is a unique entity that the Bible speaks only a few times of. In the New Testament, almost never does it talk about it. I believe seven different times is all. The vast, vast, vast majority of the time that the, the term and idea of the church is dealt with, it's dealing with the local church, which is like Missio Dei, Crossway, Christ the King, some of the churches that you know. The local church is made up of those who claim faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, but that doesn't mean they're actually saved. And if you've been here any length of time, you've seen that. You've seen people who have claimed Jesus Christ, looked really great, and then later walked away and denied the whole thing. They denied Christ. They denied their hope, everything. But they were part of the local church. And so understand that we're not talking here about the universal church. What we're talking about today is what are the activities of the local church, not the universal church. So what we have here is that in, in small remote areas, there might only be one church. You might have a village somewhere, and there's only one church, one place where the body of Christ gathers. But as the situation gets larger and more people come to faith, it becomes a reality that there become local churches within the area. And so in the area of Galatia, Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 2, that he writes this letter to the, not church of Galatia, but the churches in Galatia. So there's multiple churches there, and each one of them functioning just like they do here. We have the churches of Kenosha, or the churches of Wisconsin. Christians are to identify, though, with a local church, even though they are part of the universal church. And so what we are talking about here is quickly is that baptism or spirit baptism brings us into the universal church. But listen to me, water baptism is what will bring you into the local church. Water baptism brings you into the local church, and I'll explain that in a moment. It is the first way, beloved, that you and I are able to determine if a person is a fellow Christian. And that's what you see here in chapter 2, verse 41. Notice the first thing that I want to point out in verse 41, that baptism is for those who have already believed the gospel. Notice what it says. It says to re, that, that those who had received his word were baptized. <clears throat> Not the ones who wanted to receive his word or were considering receiving his word, and nobody, it never says that they were baptized and then received the word. It was they received the word and then they were baptized. Now, to receive simply means to accept. You know that. It is simply one of the many ways the New Testament speaks of believing. In fact, in the Gospel of John alone, the phrase or terms to believe, to come, to follow, and to love, they all literally mean the same thing. If you love Jesus, you come to Jesus. If you come to Jesus, it's because you believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you follow Jesus. And so in the Gospel of John, you'll see him just simply interchange those words all the time, and they all ultimately mean the same thing, this hope and trust in Jesus alone. So these are the people who had heard the warnings from Peter of the coming judgment. They had heard that Christ was their Messiah, that he was their sinless one, that he died, but he also rose again, and they were guilty. They were guilty because they rejected him. 
They heard that they have to repent. They heard that they must be baptized in the name of Jesus, meaning they have to identify themselves with Jesus. Their hope, their repentance, specifically with Jesus. There was no wiggle room. They weren't allowed to vaguely say, yeah, I believe in God. They had to state, I believe in Jesus, if they were to be baptized. And they received it. No fight, no argument. They embraced the command. They bowed their hearts, and they went with it. It's always a wonderful thing when you, I hope all of you have experienced that, where you have been able to see somebody come to faith. And if not, I I trust that you will endeavor to be part of that great work. It's a command of every Christian. But it's a wonderful thing when you're talking to people, and at first their eyes, you can see it in their eyes, they're guarded, right? And, and, and maybe even argumentative, and, and they're, I call it prickly. You know, they got all their spines out, and you're, you're just like, wow, you're just daring me to be friendly to you, aren't you? And, and you, you, they, they're argumentative, and they're resisting you here, and they resist you there, and, and you just keep talking with them. It's a wonderful thing as, as they're starting to read the Word. I always laugh whenever I see a person start to be willing to read the Word with me because the Word of God is living and active, and it does stuff that nobody else can do. And I'm like, oh, you're in trouble. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. You're reading the Bible now. And they start to read the Bible, and, and they are still got this. But then you start to see it. You start to see their eyes are just slowly being opened. Sometimes it's just quick, other times very slow. But the wonderful thing that you see when you do this is that you also see that time where they, they realize it's true, and they want it, and they submit themselves to it. They receive it. That's all it is. They've received it. And it looks in different ways for different people, but ultimately, when you bring them to Jesus Christ, there's no argument, there's no, uh, well, I'll accept this, but not this, or this, or this. Back in my day, when I was a young man, the big debate was, can you accept Jesus as your Savior and not your Lord? And it was called the Lordship Debate. And behind it was this idea that it's okay to have this multi-step process of being saved, that it's okay to accept Jesus as your Savior and have no intention of obeying him, which is idiotic and unbiblical, but it was very, very popular, and it's still present today in the churches. We're not called to believe in parts of Jesus or aspects of Jesus, say he's just the Savior. You're called to believe in Jesus. Now, you may only understand him as your Savior, but if you are truly in Christ and you have been truly changed by the Spirit, when you hear that he is Lord, you just accept it. You just embrace that because you, you have the Spirit of Christ in you, and so there's no debate. But what you never have is a person who says, okay, I'm going to accept Jesus as my Savior, but not my Lord. Now baptize me. I would never baptize that person. It's all or nothing. And many of you who have ever had me meet with you over the gospel, you've heard it stuck in your face every possible way. Look, he wants all of you and he demands all of you, and that's all that you have. There is no other way. It is that receiving of Jesus and embracing, and one who has been truly converted does it with joy. Now, we can see easily in this passage that professing faith in Jesus came first, then the baptism. Let me just quickly give you some other examples from the book of Acts just to drive that point home. In Acts 8.12, they believed, and then they were baptized in 8. Chapter 8, 36 to 38, the man heard, this is the Ethiopian eunuch, he believed and he was baptized, and that this man even knew that he was supposed to be baptized and asked for it, meaning that it was very clear that in the gospel presentation that Philip gave to this man, he mentioned baptism, that that was part of this, that you believe and then you'd be baptized. And so he's like, I want to be baptized. Acts 9, verse 18, Paul, having seen the risen Christ and believed, now is baptized. In Acts 10, 37 to 48, the Gentiles hear the gospel, they believe, and then they're baptized. In Acts 16, 20, the jailer in Philippi and his family are told the gospel, they believe, and are baptized. Now, we can go on and on through the rest of the book of Acts, but it's the same story on every one of those situations. You believe, and then you're baptized. So this is key. 
Baptism belongs to the person who already believes. Second, this verse 31 shows that baptism was not optional. You get no sense of anybody there saying that those who had received, some of those who received his word were baptized. That's not what you see. It's those who received were baptized. It had to be. It's part of what it means to come and be part of the church. It's not something that you had the option. Okay, are you comfortable with being baptized today? Um, no, I'm really not. Okay, well, we'll count you as a believer. We'll just not baptize you. In fact, the Bible simply never gives an indication that it's possible for you to claim Christ and refuse baptism. Peter does not say, repent, and if you're comfortable. Can't you see that today in our churches today? If you're comfortable with it, I want you to, let's have a conversation about baptism. Let's discuss, how, are you comfortable with this? And, and look, we don't want to push, and, and there's, there's pressures, and maybe you've suffered trauma in your life, and, and, and blah, 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 blah. So think, consider, if you're up for it, we'd be happy to baptize you. No. You never find the in the Bible them suggesting, putting it out there, just putting it before you, maybe you might want to be baptized. It was not a negotiable point. Now, that doesn't mean that baptism saves, but it does mean this, that if you're going to willfully, and that's the key word, willfully, refuse to be baptized, then you should be treated and accepted as a non-Christian, not a Christian at that point. Now, some of you, you might be hearing this and say, whoa, 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 we're not even going to get baptized until September, right? But you're not rejecting it either. No, you're not. And you understand that. There's a whole different point of if the baptism is not able to be done at that time, then, but you're saying, yeah, I want to be baptized. When can I be baptized? And we say, you're scheduled here. That's a whole different situation. I'm talking about the number of people out there who are walking around with the name of Christ on them, and they are claiming Christ, but they say, I will not be baptized. Maybe you've never met them. I have. What amazes me, though, is that churches today don't demand and require baptism. 3,000 people in one day, 3,000. And Peter didn't say, look, we got 3,000, this is going to be complex, let's just put this off. No, his call was repent and be baptized, and so he had to be ready with that and be prepared to baptize them. Now remember what I told you in previous sermons, that throughout the temple area, there were these large baptismal pools, they're called mikvahs. Um, they were there for anyone who had become, uh, were no longer ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean. And if you read in the Old Testament with us, you see there's a lot of ways you just simply become unclean. So you can't enter the temple to worship. And once your period of time, whatever that is, is finished and you've done the things necessary to deal with that uncleanness, then at the very end of that, so you've already now are clean, you then go to the mikvah, the baptismal pool, and you're immersed in it, and there you're now prepared to go and worship. So you can see why nobody had to wonder what a baptism was, because they all knew what baptisms were, and they also knew that you didn't do it before you were ceremonially clean. You waited until afterwards, then you did it, and it was a way to indicate that what has happened inside is now on the outside. And if you still say, yeah, but 3,000 people, that's a lot of people. They have cisterns under the temple that can hold over 10 million gallons of water. Water was not an issue, and, and the baptismal pools were not an issue. It must have been an incredible sight, though, after this big uproar of all of these people pressing out and uh, to the edges of the temple grounds where the mikvahs were, and they're all lining up, and they're all being interviewed, and they're all being baptized, and every one of them in the name of Jesus. And people all around are going to be saying, what are you doing? What's going on? And they're like, oh, we're here to be baptized. For, for Oh, great. No, no, it's because of Jesus. He died and he rose again. It was an incredible event of a testimony, a public testimony, to both believer and unbeliever, that their faith rested in Jesus Christ. Third, notice this. 
It says in verse 41, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. The third point I want to make is that those who were baptized were then added to something. What? The Kiwanis? I mean, they were added to something. What is it? Well, the answer is the church. And then, listen, until they were baptized, even though they believed and they were now a Christian and they were in the universal church, until they were baptized, they were not added physically, if you will, to the local church. That was the entryway into the church. So this requires a strong sense of order and administration just to execute that, right? 3,000 people, imagine the chaos. You've seen us when we got 18 people or 12 people, and you're like, okay, you line up here, and you, and then, can I go second? I don't want to go first, and I just want to get it over with. Can I go first? And you're just working it all, right? Imagine what it must have been like. First time, 3,000 or so people. You don't just line up in one of the pools and they dunk you. There's an interview process. They need to make sure they know why you're there. They need to make sure that you're here for the right reason. You're going to be baptized in the name of Christ. Most likely, all 120 people who were there at the beginning were involved in this process. They had to make sure what you were doing. They had to listen to your testimony. There had to be, now hear this, there had to be some way to record this, or we would not have known how many people. Somebody was ticking the boxes. Somebody was writing down names so that they could count it, so that when Luke later came and began to ask what happened, remember, Luke's the one writing this. He's a historian. He's coming in after the fact, and he's saying, so tell me about it. Well, they're looking at their records, and they're saying, so there are about 120 here, and then we have this number, and all of this is what's going on. And what this leads me to is my next point, that is that membership is also a core activity of the local church. So my second main point, the second core activity is membership. Now this one requires a little bit of explanation because for many of you, you have no knowledge of this. For others, you remember this, that the issue of membership here was a major point of division years ago. We lost many people over this. There was a lot of fight and argument and heat and hurt. Many opinions, many positions. And we had to deal with it. We dealt with it as we tend to do always head on. What I want to do, though, today is to show you that in one way or another, you already likely believe in membership. You just don't know it. But I want to show you also that there is this necessity for membership in the local church. There's already a clear membership in the universal church, right? What must you be if you're going to be a member of the universal church? You have to be a Christian, a a real Christian. There's not going to be in the membership roles of the universal church, and you say there's no membership roles. What's the book of life if your name's not written in it? You tell me. If, if your name's not in that book of life, then you're not in the u- true church, right? You're not in the universal church. With only a few exceptions, anyone who would call himself a Christian believes, actually, in some sort of membership. Now, for some, that process can be rather complex and take a long time. This is actually usually true when the church is persecuted. Now, why do you think? Just think about why in the time of persecution, does membership matter big time? Well, when you're underground and you can be let off and either killed or imprisoned, you don't just ask anybody, hey, you want to come to our service in the jungle? You immediately limit it to those whom you know can make a profession of faith and are part of your local body. In fact, if you didn't know this, the elders discussed this with all of the stuff that's going on in our nation and most definitely what's happening up in Canada right now. What would we do if they shut it down? And our answer and decision was simple. If we have to go to an underground type of worship, we immediately will limit it to only members. 
No exceptions. What members only? Why? Because they're the only ones that we actually have interviewed, and we know for a fact make a credible profession and a commitment to this local body. It is something that is a non-negotiable. And so when you have a very a time of great persecution, oftentimes the membership process becomes very, very involved. And the reason is because lives depend on it. But others, you may have grown up in a situation where the membership process was exceedingly minimalistic. But even then, let's say you belong to a house church, and you say, well, we didn't have a membership. You didn't have to do anything to be a member. I would say, yes, you did. You just didn't call it that. Because if you had a person who was a Mormon coming to your house church, you would not treat him as a member. You would not call him a believer, right? Because you know he's not a believer. He may attend, he may be part of the group, but he's not part of the body. Because the body is made up of those who profess faith. The basic, most simplest form of membership requirements is going to be a faith, an expression of faith in Jesus Christ alone. What you must see in our passage is that there's a small nucleus before this great event of the Spirit of where, where then they baptize the 3,000 people. Now that core group is mentioned in 115. And at chapter 1, verse 15, and these were the first to be baptized with the Spirit. They are the church at the very beginning. At the very beginning, the church is about 120 people. So then when we read in chapter 2, verse 41, that 3,000 more were added, who were they added to? The original 120. Now let me just give you, and so here we're going to look at several passages. Um, turn to them if you can but only if you can get there quickly. I want you to see several passages that show the need to be a member of a local church. In the beginning, it was rather simple, but rapidly it grew into a situation. By verse 47 in chapter 2, we see that more and more people were being added to their number. Again, it shows that there was some sort of recording because they're, they're still seeing them. They're being added to the original number. So it went from 120 to around 3,000 more, and then from that day forward, more and more people are still being baptized and added to their number. Now go backwards first, John, Matthew 18. Many of you know this passage about church discipline, even though it talks about a lot of other things. In the process, there's the process of disciplining a brother or sister who's in sin. You know the process. You go to them privately and and speak to them. If they don't listen, you bring one or two witnesses. If they still don't listen to them, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to what? The church. The church. You have to tell the church then that this brother is unrepentant in the sin, and if they are still unrepentant, they're sent out from there. So which church? In our day, how do you practice that? How do you, who do you tell? Do you tell it to Missio Dei, or do I need to send a letter to every single place that purports to be a church, whether it be a, a church like Grace Lutheran down near our house in United Methodist, where literally the gospel isn't preached? Or do I have to let Crossway know? Do, do I have to let all the house churches know that uh, I'm aware of? Who do you tell it to? Well, you tell it to your body, the body in which this believer belongs to. In fact, do you go and initiate Matthew 18 process on another person who goes to another church? You really can't. That's not your church, and, and, and you need to worry, not worry about them. You need not to deal with that. You deal with the people among which you belong. Next, we can go into, there's a lot of passages I had to cherry pick. Um, Acts chapter 20, 28 to 29. At this point, Paul is ready to leave Ephesus. He's in another city. He sends for the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says this in verse 28 and 29. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, notice, 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas. No, So not all the flock, meaning every believer everywhere, but all the flock among which you have been made an overseer to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now notice verse 30, and from among your own cells. So the savage wolves that will come in among you is among you, the church in Ephesus. And then in verse 30, he adds, and specifically among you, the elders. But notice that there's this flock that they identify themselves with. They are the elders. They are to oversee these people. That is the body that they are responsible to. That is the one that is their church. So you don't have to worry about the churches in Galatia or, or in Cappadocia or any other place. They just got to worry about their church. They have to understand that. Then go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a long one, but I want you, as I'm reading this passage, 1 through 13, I want you, in other words, the whole chapter, I want you to notice the terms, uh, terms like among you, midst, when you're assembled, within the church, okay? So it is actually reported, Paul says, that there is an immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from where? Your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved on the last day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? Here's the imagery of the church as a lump. That local body is a lump of uh, dough, and, and they've allowed leaven in it. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter to not associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunker or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with, now notice, judging outsiders, those who are not in the church, do you not judge those who are within? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Here is again, Paul is dealing with just a local church, and he's like, you have these people in your midst. And so again, there's this identifiable body of believers. How you want to go about identifying those people is up to the local church, but they're able to identify to the point that they say, we are so distinct that we can remove you from our midst. I've had, I had one man who told me, this is years ago, he's like, Matt, you're wrong. By virtue of me being a Christian, I belong to the church. And he's like, and so wherever I go, and he quotes the passage out of context, he says, as long as two or three of us are gathered in the name of Jesus, we are a church. And he's like, so I, I, I said, okay, so help me understand that. So when you are at a restaurant and you happen to be there with two other men who are Christians, you're a church? He's like, yes. Okay, but what happens when you get in your cars and you go separate? We're no longer a church. Okay, and then when you get home, if you, your wife and your kid is a 
are Christians, you're back to being a church again. Yes. But then when you go back your separate ways, you're not a church again. Yes. I said, you're making my head hurt. I said, okay, so when you're at the restaurant, who's your elder? He's like, what? I said, who's your elder? You got to tell me. Because a church is to have elders, and you're to submit to those who lead you, and you are to be able to be under their accountability instruction. And he's like, whoever we want. I said, no, no, you can't do that. You got to have qualified elders. And, and, the, and the joke of a conversation just went on and on for about two or three hours. But that guy was wanting no accountability. He didn't want to be in the midst of anyone. He didn't want to have to explain himself, defend himself, or submit to anyone. He just wanted to vaguely wander around the, the halls of Kenosha claiming to belong while never belonging to anything. Paul looks at this church in Corinth and says, there is a body of believers, you know who they are, and you got a guy in there doing great evil, get him out. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We request of you, brethren, he's talking to the church there in Thessalonica, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. That means there's this defined group of people because somebody's working in among that defined group of people. Not only that, but they have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. It is impossible for you to have a non-defined group of people and then tell a man you're in charge of them because the first thing he's going to ask is who is them? I've had people from other churches in this town come to me and say, I'd like you to disciple me. I said, why? And they said, well, our pastor's busy. There's just not enough time for him, and, and I would appreciate the discipleship I know I need. I said, that's great. Why don't you switch membership? You can come over here, and I'll be glad to disciple you. And they're like, well, no, we want to stay over there. And I'm like, then have your pastor disciple you. Well, he's too busy. Then come here and join this church, and I'll disciple you. I don't want to come here. I want there, but I want you to disciple. I've had this dozens of times, and I laugh at the guy. I'm like, all right, well, let me give you my free discipleship lesson that's only going to be once. No. No. You're not mine. You don't belong to me. You're not among me. I'm not among you. You want to be over there, but you want me to hold you accountable. No, that's not how it works. I have a church. I'm looking at some of you right now. This is the people I have to be responsible for. And in my thinking process, I always go membership outward. Those who are the members of this church are my charge. They're John's charge. They're Matt's charge. These are the people we're responsible for. These are the ones that the one another's are supposed to be done. These are the things where the whole life of the epistle where it says, be kind to one another. What's that mean? It's not to everybody out there. It's here. We ought to be a people known for kindness toward each other. So understand that, again, the Bible just assumes this idea that you belong to a defined group, and there are people who are responsible for you. You know who they are, and they know who you are. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Verse 17 and verse 24, obey who? Your leaders. You don't have to submit to any other pastor. You don't have to submit to any elder, but your leaders. Submit to them. Why? Because they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do it with joy, not with grief because this would be unprofitable for you. Verse 24, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Okay, so who are you commanded, if you're reading this, who are you to command, commanded to greet? Your leaders and all the saints. Every saint, you got to go over to back to Crossway, down across over to EV Free Church in Antioch. you got to do that? Is that what he means, or is it here? It's here. 
That local manifestation of Christ called the local church is where you belong. And if you don't belong, then there is an issue. Because you can't say, these are my elders, they give watch over my soul if you're not part of that body. Now you add to that metaphors, and where time is up, so I'm just going to make mention of these. You can look at the verses. These metaphors are used to speak of the local church. The, the most common metaphor in the Bible is the body, the body of Christ. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. You would never look at a separated, severed finger lying on a sidewalk and say that, that that's a body. The only purpose of that thing, well, you laugh, but it's true. The only purpose that finger has is when it's what? It's attached to the body. Once it's no longer and it can't be reattached, it's just burned. Because there's nothing, there's no purpose for it. The purpose of the body and of being belonging to that body is that you you have a place in the overall group. The second picture is that of the building or the temple. So in 1 Peter 2, he calls us living stones. What makes us living stones is that we're all connected to Christ by the Spirit. But we're being built into a building. It's not just a pile of random bricks over here and you look. You don't look at a pile of bricks and say, what a lovely building. That's just rubble. You look at a pile of bricks and then you see them being fit together into a building. You say, ah, I see. It belongs. They all depend on each other and they all fit together. Finally, as a family, we are God's household. You know who your family is, right? Not one of you here is like, well, I'm not sure. No, you know who your family is. Like it or not, you know it. The church is the family, and we are a family here, and all throughout this town there are other families. So with that in mind, let me just kind of bring us all together. View them, if you will, view baptism and membership like our entryways to our church. You have the outer door, and then you have the inner door. When you are baptized... Yet means that you heard and see a person who openly testifies that Jesus is their Lord, that they're resting and hoping in his death and his resurrection for the resolution of their sin. And as a result, they're no longer under eternal death but have life. And when they're baptized, you, sit, you can say, that person's a Christian. That's just like enter, going through those first set of doors. You're in the building, Right? but you're not really in the building. You're still out there, but you're in. When you come through the second doors, you're more in. Now you understand you're in, you're in where life is going on here. And that's what the membership is. It's that inner door of the local church where the person now says, I want to be in there. I want to be with those people. It's where the leaders of the church come uh, to view these people as under their care and responsibility. It's where those joining make it clear that it is with these people and these elders and this vision that we want to belong. We want to have fellowship. We want accountability. So to believe the gospel and be baptized makes you a Christian, but to join a church, to identify yourself with this church or that, is one where it now brings you into the fullness of fellowship. There is a God-given way for the local churches to know who belongs to their church and who does not. Now, beloved, I'm not trying to be harsh here, but you have to understand that. It, it, It allows the leaders and the people in these local churches to quickly recognize who they are accountable to, who they're to serve and care and support, and even to whom they are to submit and obey. Frankly, the entire group of the New Testament epistles assumes that those who are claiming Christ are connected to a local church and that those in that church know that they're connected. One of the first things I did when I came here, the first year coming here as pastor, is according to the roles, we had over 350 members 
in our church. We had 50 showing up. I'm like, uh, where are these people? And so we wrote a letter to every single one of them, asked if we could meet with them, would they like to, but we also provided a card that's self-addressed and said, if you have no interest in being part of this church, fine, just mail this back and we'll remove you from the rolls. And they, some did, but if they did not contact us, we just removed them. I got called from the Southern Baptist office because our rolls went from 350-ish down to 75. You're not supposed to do that in the Southern Baptist world. I'm like, I'm not pastoring these people. They're not mine. You have no idea. I got phone calls from, this in the old days, uh, from Kenosha Hospital. Hi, is this Pastor Henry? Yes, it is. Hi, I have one of your members here that if you'd like to visit. And I'm like, okay, their name. I'm like, I have no idea who this person is. And I would call one of the, the longtime members and ask them, do you know who this person is? No, I've never heard of them. But they're in the hospital. And they want their pastor that they've never seen and they never attend. They're not mine. And I'm not accountable to them. I went there because usually I figured they weren't saved and we'd share the gospel. Then I would get kicked out of the room. And I'm like, okay. But the real that's how it works, guys. It's it's a reality. Do you know who you belong to? Do you know who are is your body? Do you know who your pastor is? Do you know who your elders are? When you evangelize, you need to point them to the church, and to get them connected into a church. Now, what do we do then if you don't want to join a church? Well, that's very unfortunate. It's a very common reality in America, but it's not healthy, nor is it wise. It's common to have people claiming Christ who've never been baptized and therefore never had their profession of faith ever remotely scrutinized. This leaves their soul in grave danger because they just assume that They are a Christian because some guy told them, but never have they been able to give a testimony before the people of their hope. What about those who are baptized and still are not part of a local church? Well, here's what we do, if you're wondering. The elders here choose to accept them as people who claim Christ. And they're welcome to come and worship. And to a degree, they're welcome to even take part in ministry. But ultimately, you will be asked, do you wish to join? And if you say no, then we will thank you for that. We we actually would appreciate that kind of honesty, and we'll tell you to go find a new church. Not to be mean, just to say, if you can't be part of this body to the point that you will join, because one of the basic aspects of submitting at Missio Dei Fellowship is joining the church. The elders say you need to join. And if you don't want that, that's okay, totally okay. Just go find a church you can Now, if there's struggles or there's issues, sometimes they're complex. You have an unbelieving husband or wife or something. You'll find that we're incredibly patient with it. But ultimately, when you just say, no, we don't want to join, that's fine. Then go find a place. We also will give you ample time to settle. We want people. And and during this time with COVID, so much became in turmoil. But it's time for you, some of you, to begin to ask, do you want to be part of this place or not? You really need to ask, and, and as my dad would say, fish or cut bait. But you have to ask yourself, is this where you want? We will be patient with you. We have been patient with you. But what we will never allow you to do, as long as you don't... And by the way, when we say patient, we have people who have been here 20 years, and they're still not a member. Patient. We're, we really work hard at being patient. But you're never going to be allowed to teach. You'll never be allowed to have a point of influence. You'll be limited as to how much time the elders will invest in you because you're not theirs. We have to shepherd our flock. We have to shepherd those of whom God has given us. And if you're going to say, I want to be here, but I want to be hands off, arm's reach, we'll honor that. We'll give you that arm reach and we'll add one more of our own and just simply say, fine, come here, listen, I hope that you'll learn, we hope that you'll grow, but we will not and cannot invest time. There's only so much that we have, and we have to shepherd those among us. This is a core activity of the church. It is something that we see in the scripture, and I hope that you're starting to, if you're always wondering about it, that you're thinking. Baptism is the first, 
Membership is the next, and then over the next couple more sermons, we'll look at the other four, Lord willing. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we we now go home or go about our business, as some of us travel, I pray for mercy. We pray for great mercy with the Hendersons, that they would find great peace that comes only by the work of the Spirit. I pray for each of the people here that they would be reminded again that this is a place where they have identified and every member here would be in much prayer for one another, encouraging one another, that they would delight in the fact that their pastors are seeking to care for them. Help us, Father, toward that end. I ask, Lord, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted but that we would always be reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your mercies, Father. They're so patient with us. We thank you for Jesus who took our sin, and we thank you for the spirit that keeps us safe to eternity. In your son's name, amen.